it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fans, welcome to Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 189. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and I will be your host for this week's edition. Now, an important note before we start. Most of this episode was recorded on Tuesday, June 7th. That is the pre-Kelly Johnson 2.0 era. So you're going to hear... Chris McShane and I talk about options for th- at third base for the Mets, and we mention Kelly Johnson as a potential option, but we don't go too in-depth with that because we didn't know he was on the team because uh, he wasn't at the time of us recording it. So please be aware of that. Um, I'm sure we'll deal with Kelly a little bit more next week, especially because we got an email about Kelly after we had already wrapped the segment. Now, speaking of email, you guys have been great about emailing us in big chunks and then going silent for a while. Last week, we had more emails than we knew what to do with. This week, we had none. So remember, you can always email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. So without any further ado, here is a conversation between Chris and I about 
all things Mets, but specifically third base and the injured parade of Mets that seems to grow longer and longer each day. Well, Chris, we are recording this after the Mets have dropped a pair of games to the Pirates in a doubleheader. Both games, they lost 3-1. to one. Both games were incredibly anemic offensively. Both games featured decent but unspectacular starting pitching. And uh, right now, the Mets are uh, a team that offensively is really, really banged up. David Wright is expected out six to eight weeks on the on the incredibly optimistic side. We don't have a return date yet for Duda. Travis Darno still has not caught in a game and will not start catching for at least a week. Yuan um, Cespedes has a sore hip. Juan Lagares is not on the disabled list, but has a partially torn ligament in his thumb and is available pretty much just for pinch running and maybe defense in a pinch. Pardon the pinch pun. Um, what's going on with this team offensively? Is there is there hope on the horizon for these guys, or is this going to be a problem until the Mets get some reinforcements? Uh, somewhere in between, I think. With with who they have, you know, you, you, you see people talking about June of 2015. Uh, this isn't exactly that. You know, there's still five everyday players who you expect are going to be better than they've been recently. Uh, Cespedes, Curtis Granderson, Michael Conforto, Cabrera, and Neil Walker's been really good lately for the most part. He didn't do a whole lot in the doubleheader, but you can't knock him. The last couple weeks, he's been as good as anybody anywhere. He's Uh, been their best player. Yeah, so... You know, you don't expect him to necessarily maintain. I think coming into tonight over the last two weeks, he had an OPS over one. You don't expect him to necessarily keep that up. But uh, everybody else of those five regulars should be better than they have been. So, you know, with Conforto, it's been a very long slump now. Uh, I still think he's going to come out of it and be okay. You know, I don't – I think – I just think he's a better player than that. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have years and years of track record to, you know, to prove that. But yeah, I think I think he's going to be all right. So fully healthy, you know, with David Wright, Lucas Duda, and Travis Darno in this lineup, there was really no easy out, top to bottom. And now it's just so top heavy. And if the top isn't really doing much collectively, then, you know, there's not a whole lot there. Right. Yeah, the uh, the Conforto thing is, it's easy to get very worried about him because he does have such a small sample of track record behind him. And so you want to believe that the player that was you know, hitting the cover off the ball in April is the real guy, not the guy who couldn't get a hit in May. I understand the fear there, but I, I'm with you. I think that he probably will. He's probably not quite the hitter he was in April, but I think he's certainly better than the hitter he's been the last five or six weeks, at least. Um, you know, Cespedes, we know his hip is, or at least was sore a couple days ago. He's probably not feeling 100%. Granderson's a very streaky player. Asdrubal Cabrera is about as good as I thought Asdrubal Cabrera would be for the Mets. So, you know, I think they can be a little bit better, but I do think that 
one of the strengths that this um, that this team was supposed to bring this year was depth. And it was touted how deep the team was and how we weren't going to be having a replay of last year when somebody went down. Well, Ty Kelly's been on the roster for a few weeks now. <laughs> I don't know if the depth is is quite what what we all thought it was going to be. Um, is this just a, a matter of a lot of injuries happening at once, or do you think that the depth was more of a problem than maybe we had talked about in the off season in the early season? Hmm. Uh huh. I don't know. I it's. I feel like coming into the season, obviously we didn't expect that, you know, Matt Reynolds and Ty Kelly would be on the roster at the same time. I don't think everybody thought every player was going to stay healthy. Uh, but, you know, it was... I think there's just a stark contrast between the infield and the outfield, really. Uh, you know, you came into the season with five major league outfielders. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Lagares and Deaza aren't quite on the level of the other three, but in that part of the roster, the funny thing is that is the deepest part of the roster that they started the season with. And, you know, there's been some minor things and we'll see what Lagares can do uh, with, with this thumb ligament. But that's the part of the roster that's held up the best in terms of health. So I think they, if they were tested for depth in the outfield, they would hold up better than, being tested for depth in the infield. Um, and, you know, really just having having the exact two players that they have out sort of highlights the one area that they didn't have a lot of real significant depth, in, and that was the corner infield spots. Mm-hmm. And I think also when we, when we came into the season, or at least, you know, shortly before, uh, Ruben Tejada was probably in everybody's list of players. That you is know. true. Not that, not that I, you know, I liked him enough, you know, decent, better than a lot of people gave him credit for. But uh, but you weren't quite uh, Patrick Flood high on him. No, no, <laughs> I wasn't that. But you know, he was a he was a guy that when you looked at the roster. You know, because they brought back Cespedes, because they had Walker, uh, you knew pretty much that everybody on that roster was a major league player. But you know, those the 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 bench coming in on the infield was not Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, right? You know, and it's it's funny that we're sort of in that same spot now, where it's not that I don't think I think this offense can be decent without any moves, uh, and that's because of those five guys who should be at the top of the order. And Wilmer Flores should be hitting better, too. That would help things a lot. And he's been been respectable recently. That's Mm -hmm. not enough for me to say, oh, that's fine. You know, he's he's the third baseman uh, until David Wright comes back. It's not enough for that for me, but, you know, he's held his own. Yeah, I agree. Um, you wrote a piece for Mason Avenue that went up this morning that highlighted some of the Mets' internal and external third base options. And I, I think all of us feel like third base is probably the most important place for an upgrade right now. And the Mets went out and got James Loney, you know, 
essentially for free, and he's been perfectly cromulent at being James Loney. He's gotten a couple hits. He's played a nice first base. I think that that's about as good as you can get for the price they paid. You know, Mets fans should be very happy with James Loney right now. You shouldn't necessarily be happy if that's their solution and Duda's out for another two months. But I think if Duda's coming back relatively soon, Loney's a fine replacement. I think third base is the bigger problem spot. And um, I don't want to summarize your article when I have you on the line. So uh, what what were your findings about players both in and out of the organization who could maybe take some at-bats at third base? Well, I mean, internally it's pretty much Flores or somebody who should not be a solution for a team that's contending. That's sort of the short of it. <laughs> um, outside of the organization, there's a lot of options that aren't particularly exciting, but might be that kind of guy. I mean, Kelly Johnson is one of them. He's not hit well this year at all, but uh, they might be that kind of guy who can come in and just be a league average hitter, maybe a little bit above or below that. But, you know, somebody who has some track record of success in the majors as opposed to Matt Reynolds and Ty Kelly. Yeah. A um, couple of the names you mentioned in the article, just to fill in folks maybe haven't read it, Daniel Descalso, Stephen Drew, David Fries, Chris Johnson, Casey McGee, Martin Prado, Justin Turner, Luis Valbuena, um, Miguel Sano, Trevor Plouffe, you know, Escobar, Danny Valencia, Aaron Hill. These names are not exactly lighting the world on fire for our listeners, I would think. Um, is there a guy within there that stands out to you? Because there is one that maybe interests me. Uh, well, well, Sano, if he were available, would be uh, would be quite the blockbuster. But aside from... <laughs> He's not available, yeah. Right, no, not, not at all. The Twins have done very few things right recently. He's one of them. Uh, obviously he's, he's not out there, but, uh, for me, I think Valencia is sort of the most appealing and he's a former twin himself and he's, you know, he, he wasn't very, very good for most of his career, but over the last year plus he's been excellent as a hitter. Uh, you know, so that whether or not that's sustainable, I don't know, but you know, if you can sort of, I could buy into that, that, hey, this guy seems like he changed. He's very, very good. And, uh, you know, if he's if he stays that good, you figure out what to do with the playing time when everybody's healthy. You know, that's sort of that's not really a problem. Right. Uh, so he. I think he's the most exciting just because he clearly has the best numbers of anybody uh, in the bunch. And, you know, it's either guys who are set to hit free agency after the season or guys who are playing for teams that are just bad. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he's sort of the, the, the marquee name. Uh, you know, I know a bunch of Mets fans have mentioned Solarte. Not happening. And yeah, I mean, it's just sort of, he's got a few years of control left and you're, you're in a spot where he's been pretty good in his major league career, but what are you willing to give up to get a guy who, you know, who might just be pretty good. Uh, and because of that, 
you know, he's making just over the minimum. Uh, he's, you know, I think he's under control through, uh, what is it, 2019? I believe so. You know, San Diego's not going to just give him away. Uh, that, and that that's like the least Sandy Alderson move of all time. To give up to give up something for a guy who may not be an imp- who may not make a strong impact, and to it just it just doesn't seem like something that that Alderson would do. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's fair. So, yeah, these guys. I mean, uh, here's the good news about Danny Valencia, is that he's in the last couple of years he has played. Left field, right field, first, second, and third. So if you were to bring in, if you were to bring him onto the Mets, and Wright comes back healthy in August or September, he could fill in other places. And Wright's still going to need time off, so he could still fill in for Wright. You wouldn't, you're not getting a a James Loney in the sense of Loney is a left-handed first baseman who's replacing a left-handed first baseman. When Duda comes back, there's almost nothing for Loney to do. That is not the case with Valencia. He's not making a lot of money this year. The A's aren't doing anything this year. I don't think it would take a whole lot to pry him away, I would hope. Uh, you know, he, he seems like the best of a very, very limited um, talent pool here. If you had to guess, do you think the Mets do make a move for an outside third baseman? Or do you think that they stay put for the time being? Hmm... I guess it depends how the next few weeks go, you know. So my I the short term answer is that I don't think they're gonna do anything uh imminently. So, you know, they might have to reassess where they are in the middle of June, uh at the end of June. I don't think they can necessarily wait until the end of July. Um I know the trade deadline sort of lends itself to that that teams might not be willing to give guys up, especially with two wild cards in play and everything. I get all that, you know, and you're not going to go and overpay for a guy or acquire someone who is so-so, use up some of your trade resources, uh, and then a month later revisit the market and then have, you know, less on hand to deal away to get somebody who might be better. Right. Um but yeah, I I would think that they will make at least a move or two. Maybe not for anybody on, on the headlining class of this, but uh, you know, somebody an, an Aaron Hill, somebody on that level that you can probably get for you know uh, similar returns that they gave up last year, single day pitchers who may or may not turn into anything ever. Uh, you know, and there are varying degrees of that. Obviously, they, they give up more for Cespedes, but, but yeah, I, it, it it's a gray area. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I hope they, I hope they do something. And if only to make it a situation, you know, last year was, was such a good example of it where, you might get to a spot where you say, okay, there's 26 major league caliber players on this roster and we only have room for 25. I'd like, I'd much rather be in that spot than wondering, 
you know, whether or not Ty Kelly can cut it. I hate to pick on Ty Kelly, but I feel like he's just, he's pretty uh, indicative of the situation the Mets offense is in right now. He came up as a pinch hitter uh, to, you know, to to hit the ball. That just seems crazy to me. He's not, you know, he's, uh, if he is your second or third option off the bench, that says a lot about their depth right now. Um, I hope they make a move too. I don't think they're going to anytime soon. I think, like you said, I think they have to have a, a clearer picture of when Duda and Wright and Darno are coming back. But is there a non-third base place that you think would be uh, wise for them to upgrade in the short term? Well, it, it's like this holding pattern with everybody, right? If if something happens and there's a setback or a new injury and Travis Darno isn't going to be back for a longer period of time than in, than expected, then you know, Jonathan Lucroy looks really, really good. I mm-hmm. mean, of course, he's probably going to take a real return to pry away from the Brewers as bad as they are. You know, he doesn't make any money. He's a good hitter. He's been a good hitter for a while. He catches. He can play some first base. You know, there's a lot to like there with him. Uh, but if Darno is coming back in the relatively near future, uh, compared to, say, Wright or Duda. I get why they wouldn't want to do something there. Uh, not not on that level. Um, Kevin Plowacki certainly hasn't done anything to inspire confidence in what he can do in 2016. You know, I'm not writing him off for the long term by any means, but, you know, catcher. Rene Rivera is a nice story in terms of what he does with the pitching staff, but, but yeah. I, I would. I guess I don't have strong priorities in terms of which position to do it at. I think catcher seems like the one that's most likely to work out over the next few weeks, uh, only because we know that Lucas Duda and David Wright won't be back until, you know, mid mid July maybe for Duda, or end of July, and then end of July, mid August, or end of August for Wright. Um, so it's just it's just about major league players, I think, to me. Wherever they can be had, I would take them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that you know the the obvious answer here is catcher, but catcher also has the lowest acceptable offensive threshold. So while Plawecki and Rivera are not doing anything to excite me offensively, it doesn't take them. If both of them got on a little bit of a, of a hot streak, they could be completely passable until Darno comes back. Whereas you're going to notice the lack of production at third base considerably more so than you would the lack of offensive production at catcher. Yeah. And again, it's not really specifically a knock on Flores, but you know he hasn't had a single season thus far where he's been a great hitter. You know, he was, he was okay last year. He hit home runs. He didn't get on base a lot. You know, it, it was, it was workable for what role he had. And he probably got a little more playing time than everybody would have liked uh, overall. I mean, of course, part of that was that he was playing shortstop, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's, 
you know, Flores might be best suited to be that, you know, platoon partner at first base for Loney or a guy who plays, you know, a little bit of third, maybe gets in a little bit at second. You know, Neil Walker has sort of been surprisingly very, very good as a right-handed hitter this year. We didn't really expect that coming in. Um, but the one thing, I guess, sort of Walker leads to this, the one thing we haven't brought up is that maybe Walker can just play third base and we can see Dilson Herrera come back up. Uh, the, the What's funny is that Herrera has better major league stats at the plate, albeit in a you know, more limited sample of playing time. Uh, but at a younger age, he's been a better hitter than Flores has in his major league career. Um, you know, the batting average hasn't been there, but everything else has been pretty good with his offensive game. And, man, he's he's exciting. I think seeing Dilson Herrera play every day for a month would excite me more than pretty much any of the trade targets, except for maybe Valencia... Uh, or yeah, maybe just him. Yeah, I I think I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, Walker seems to be one of these guys who is pretty agreeable to doing whatever it takes to help the team win. And so, if he's willing to move over to third base and let Herrera come up, well, that changes the complexion of the lineup quite a bit, actually. And that buys them time with Wright, and to a certain degree, it will allow. Walker to not come back to the Mets next year and people will understand why because I really think the fan base ha- has yeah I mean look fans are passionate about the players that they know and they like Walker comes over in a trade hits a ton of home runs is an affable guy I understand why the fan base really likes him but I think there's going to be a large portion of the fan base who's going to want Walker back next year and that's just a bad move and so I think if you put Dilson Rare at second base for a month or a month and a half, and people see what he can do, that makes that a little bit of an easier pill to swallow in the offseason. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a good part of it, too. Um, you know, the primary concern is winning games. Absolutely. But, but it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's going to hurt Walker any to go into free agency having played some third base and it's not so much a knock on him, but you know, I think it would be reasonable for other people to understand why it was that he played third. And I don't think he would embarrass himself there either. You know, it's not saying that he's not a second baseman anymore. I mean, it might, it might even help his free agency a little bit to show his versatility. Yeah. I, you know, and he, he hasn't, he played a very, very, little bit at third and that was years ago uh but you know typically going in that direction on the diamond isn't considered a challenging thing but but yeah uh, i i hope i don't know i i feel like you know where we you get into these things where very early in the season conforto gets moved to the third spot in the batting order and people eat it up that, oh, wow, he moved up and he's been even better since they moved him and the offense has been great, right? And, like, I'm not – I personally, I don't buy into that uh, as it's going on, but people love that sort of thing. So they're sort of well-positioned for us being in a spot that if you called up Herrera, 
and he played well, and the offense started to turn, turn it around, which really would have more to do with guys just hitting the way that they usually hit instead of hitting terribly. Right. You'd have another spot where, like, oh, wow, look, they called up Dilson Herrera, and it, it you know, turned the offense around. And, again, you know, their primary objective should be winning games. But uh, you might be able to sort of change the – the mood around the team a little bit uh, as far as perception goes if Dilson Herrera is successful and, you know, Curtis Granderson maybe has a really good month in him. And it, it would be coincidental, but people might buy into it. And, hey, look, Dilson Herrera kick-started the offense. Yeah, that makes a nice story. I think the importance of, of those stories is, like you said, just changing the perception around the team and also, you know, one of the reasons that we've been told for years is that if fans come out to games, management, I mean, the ownership will spend money. I don't know if I believe that causation or not, because I know our owners, but I think that getting people to the ballpark is a really valuable thing for a team. And if the team is playing this anemically a month from now, I think you're going to, it's going to be harder to get people into the ballpark. So any little spark to change that perception to get people there is a good thing for the team. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to their credit, I don't know, you know, they, they did enough over the winter that we can't knock them for not spending. I'm not sure, you know, exactly what the road was to get to that point. Right. But, uh, but they, they wound up living up to that concept, you know, I, I, (laughs) I don't think a lot of us thought they would, but, you know, right now they, they did. And you would hope, especially since there's potentially some money to be saved by David Wright's absence, uh, you know, and there was money that came in in the playoffs last year, and there's a very good chance, despite everything that seems really terrible right now, there's still a very good chance that they get back to the playoffs and there's more money coming in again this year. You would hope that they'd be willing to take on salary. You know, I mean, Yunel Escobar is one of the guys that came up on that that list of players. Um, you know, and he's he's making seven million this year. He's got a, t- uh, a team option for the same for next year. The Angels are in a spot where they're not looking to take on any more salary. They're bad. They're they're a mess. Uh, they have the best player in baseball, and they're a mess. <laughs> you know, so that that's the kind of guy who I think you could probably send them somebody who's not really gonna hurt you to give up. Uh, take on that's a very moderate salary in 2016, and you know it's a player who could be a good role player, fill in at third, uh, you know, fill in at second if that need arises be a part of this team and just knock somebody who's on the current active roster down to AAA. So, you know, I'm not expecting them to go out and make a, another blockbuster trade and get somebody on that level of, uh, of Cespedes as again, you know, I don't know that there's that many guys on that level who even exist that are available, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would hope I after last year when everybody assumed they would do nothing and then they did stuff. 
I'm, I'll, I'll at least give them, you know, a little benefit of the doubt that maybe they'll make some moves again. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> this is not a very cheery chat tonight. Yeah, but... it's probably as down as you're going to get me sounding. Uh, and I, I'm still like, ah, screw it. They're still going to win the division. <laughs> the wild card's there. If they don't, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I I think, I hope I'm right. I think we're sort of at a low point at the moment. And the low point is still, you know, whatever, wherever we are, uh, three, three and a half, four games back at the Nationals. It's it's not that low. No. It's June 7th. There's plenty of time. Yeah, the you know, sort of looking ahead a little bit when when they go into the All-Star break and they play the Nationals a whole bunch of times. I think it's I think it's 7 times in 14 days or something like that. Since baseball seems to have sort of fallen in love with that scheduling that you play a team at home and then maybe play two series or three series in between and then you play that team on the road. That's sort of been a, a reoccurring theme with a lot of these teams. Uh, you know, the Mets are in Pittsburgh this week. You know, they've played a three-game series there. Uh, and then Pittsburgh comes back to City Field next week. So, you know, sort of interesting the way that Major League Baseball has gone about doing that. But, you know, you're going to get in a spot where there's a whole bunch of games against the Nationals in a short span of time. And those could go anyway. You know, and we know that we know that from last year. I mean, the Mets late last season just swept the Nationals twice and really ended any debate about even having a race in the National League East. Um, so I think in that sense that that might be where you can buy some time. You know, they don't, they don't play them. What's the, uh, let's see. I might as well have the exact information at hand here. <laughs> so on June 27th, the Mets go to Washington to begin a three-game series there. Uh, and then they host the Cubs for four. They come off that. <clears throat> they host the Marlins. And then they host the Nationals for four in the last four days going into the All-Star break. So by June 26th, that night, I think whatever move you want to make, if there is one to be made, should be in place. Because <laughs> that's going to be a rough couple weeks. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean... Or or a triumphant couple weeks. Yeah. Well, I'm so sick of the Cubs. I mean, you know, the division stuff is probably is way more important. And, you know, the Mets and Cubs only play each other a few times a year. And last year in the regular season, it went very poorly. And then in the NLCS, it went perfectly. Um, you know, it, but it's, it's sort of just the hype around them that I'm a little, uh, a little tired of. I think we but, all are. Yeah. But, yeah, Cubs, the Cubs being annoying in the age of the internet. Who, who would have saw that coming? <laughs> Well, Chris, I think that's probably a pretty good place to leave this. Hopefully, when we get together next week to talk, things are looking up a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they play the Brewers for four games. 
whatever happens in the series finale with the Pirates, the Brewers aren't very good. Uh, and I'm I'm ever the optimist when it comes to this stuff, but I think it'll be it can't be much worse than losing a doubleheader in which the offense essentially did nothing. Struck out twelve or thirteen times in the second game. Yeah, yeah. And I I would have preferred I don't know what I would prefer against John Neese. I mean I would have preferred you know <laughs> ten runs. Yeah. But if, if you had to lose to John Neese, death by ground ball outs was probably my least favorite way to do it. So, yeah, I probably agree with that. So, yeah, better times ahead. Yes, I'll drink to that. Hey, everyone, Steve Schreiber here, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. So, on Tuesday afternoon, the Mets and the Pirates played a doubleheader to make up for the rainout on Monday. And uh, during Game One, uh, Ron and Gary tried a uh, some some kind of uh, outrageous uh, variety of hot dog that they offer in Pittsburgh. It was called the Cracker Jack and Mac hot dog, which apparently is is what it sounds like. It's Cracker Jacks and macaroni and cheese and I think peppers or something like that on a hot dog. Um, so as you might imagine, it was not the uh, the greatest tasting thing in the world. Uh, here's Ronnie's reaction. Well, Ronnie, you've got to experience it firsthand, the uh, Cracker Jack and Mac dog. Yeah, I haven't stopped coughing since. <laughs> I'd say it wasn't a roaring success up here in the booth. That, that is... <laughs> This, well. is, this is where it's going, right here. See this right here? That's where it's going, right there. That was one of, that really was one of the worst experiences I've had in quite some time. That five and a half ERA ahead with the Oakland A's in 95 was was that. Now, I will say, you willingly dug into it. It wasn't as though this was forced on you. I, I, I went to a place that I knew I shouldn't have gone, and, uh, you know, you got to trust my instincts a little better. So uh, what what makes this moment so great is that uh, you'll see this on This Week in SNY uh, later this week when the latest edition comes out. Uh, Ronnie takes the hot dog on TV and turns around and throws it right into the trash. So make sure you get ready for that. So that wraps up your This Week in SNY Minute for this week. Now back to Amazing Avenue Audio. We have a brand new segment this week from our pal Lucas Vlahos. He's going to be, well, I'll let Lucas tell you about it. Hello, Met fans. This is Lucas Vlahos, and welcome to the Weekly Stat Fact. This is a new podcast segment where we look at some interesting stat or stats. This could be more advanced stuff, historical comps, wacky play index searches, whatever seems most interesting at the time. And if you have any ideas for a better name, I'm more than open to suggestions since the only ideas I had for that were Futurama references or terrible puns. So, for this week, our first installment, I thought I'd dip back into some familiar waters. The Mets just got swept in a doubleheader as I'm recording this, uh, losing both games by a score of 3-1 to one to the Pirates. They also lost their prior game to the Marlins, getting shut out by Jose Fernandez. 
which is understandable. Jose Fernandez is very good. The Met offense is not, at least not over the last month. They rank 26th in weighted runs created plus, with an 83 mark equivalent to a lineup full of Cocoa Crisps. They are last in runs, 11 behind Atlanta, just for some context on how horrible they've been. They're leading the league in strikeout percentage over the last 30 days, and unlike the beginning of the season, they haven't been particularly unlucky in terms of home runs per fly ball. 15% of their fly balls are leaving the yard, which is still in the top 10 and exactly the same as their season numbers. They're still taking their walks. The offense is floundering regardless. Now, Met fans are probably getting a bit of deja vu from this. Napped, can't score a single run. In 2014, this happened in August, when the team had a not-so-nice 69-weighted runs created plus, which is a lineup full of Freddie Galvises. That lineup featured Sterling Curtis Granderson and David Wright, Ruben Tejada, Kirk Neuenheis, Wrecker, Eric Young Jr., so really a very bad group in that lineup. In 2015, there was a 13-game stretch in late June and early July where the team scored only 22 runs, four of them driven in by Steven Matz, and this included that 18-inning uh, sci-fest from Keith Hernandez in St. Louis. Uh, and this is while Michael Kadire, Kevin Polecki, Eric Camel, Darius Siciliani were all getting consistent at-bats, so another really putrid group of position players. Now, both times... I wrote brief articles on how the Mets were seriously underperforming their expected Babbitt, their ex-Babbitt. And the concept there is just that pop-ups are very bad, fly balls are bad, line drives, hard hit balls, and going to the opposite field are all good in terms of batting average. In 2014, their expected Babbitt was 310, their actual Babbitt was 247. these things happen, you wind up on the wrong side of the bell curve and you get a really horrible outlier uh, and a really horrible offensive month. And as you would expect, the Mets rebounded shortly thereafter, both times. So what is that? Various criteria I mentioned. What is our previous method of reassurance tell us about this current Met team? Their current expected BABIP is 303, this over the last month, while their actual BABIP is 280. That's not as positive as we've seen in the past. In 2014 and 2015, we had an 80-point gap that we could point to and say, this is jump, just a bump in the road, the Mets will bounce back and they'll be fine. Now we only have a 20-point bump, which will help but it's still not enough to take the league's worst offense over the past month and make it passable. Further, that formula gives a lot of credit to guys like Eric Campbell, who has consistently defied this sort of analysis, the kind of guy who just beats the ball really hard into the ground. Uh, and while I'll go to my grave saying that Eric Campbell is unlucky and better than his major league numbers would indicate, uh, these multiple regression formulas often have outliers that they do poorly with. So, 
the positive regression we might expect could be even lower than what we see now. So this is worrying. Uh, this is really our best tool and our best hope for seeing uh, a light at the end of the tunnel here and hopefully to pull us back from the edge a bit, get us to move out of Panic City, but it's not offering us any solace this time around. I'll sprinkle in a little bit of hope before we go. Um, there's some good work being done at Fangrass by Andrew Perpet. batted balls by horizontal angles, vertical angles, and velocity. You make some arbitrary buckets and then you use that to predict what uh, your BABIP and weighted on base average should be. And there are some problems with this method. Probably better off using a clustering algorithm rather than uh, arbitrarily divided buckets, but as a first pass it does a very good job capturing this new StatCast data. And what this data tells us is that several Mets are due for some positive regression, most notably Michael Conforto, Curtis Granderson, and, when he's healthy, Lucas Duda, presuming that his back doesn't uh, continue to be an issue. Um, and this is for the season stretch, the whole season, not just the most recent stretch. So uh, their whole season numbers are better than their numbers for this stretch, and their whole season numbers are still in underperformance. So, in theory, these three batters, or for now two, since Duda is still hurt, will improve. That being said, Ioannis Cespedes is due for some negative regression of his own, enough to cancel out any positive regression from Curtis Granderson, should they progress to exactly their expected on-base average. Also worth remembering that this data is very new, and while it does correlate very strongly with uh, the weighted on-base averages we've seen from last season, it's still a relatively small data set. So what's our conclusion here? The offense is hurt, and guys coming back will help for sure. Replacing Rene Rivera and Kevin Pilecki with Travis Darno will help. Replacing James Loney with Lucas Duda will help. Um, beyond that, StatCast offers a bit of hope in terms of our newest batted ball data. But for the time being, given the measurement of our older but more established and more manipulable ex-Babbitt measure, the Mets are due for some continued offensive struggles. Mike Workinoff is a freelance writer who has done work for such outlets as USA Today, Vice Sports, Baseball Prospectus, The New York Times, and SNY.TV. Chris and Mike sat down a couple days ago to talk the Mets and more, and enjoy. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Mike Vorkanov. He spent a couple of seasons on the Mets beat. You know his work and his name from there. Uh, you can find him a little bit everywhere right now. He's written for The Times. Uh, he's done some pieces at Baseball Prospectus's Mets site. Vice Sports, USA Today. Uh, am I am I leaving anything out? No, I don't think you guys have hired me yet for a story. So, I mean, there's still <laughs> to come, right? Like, maybe in the future. Depending how desperate you guys get, yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't classify that as desperation. For crappy content. Uh, well, 
you know, the times, I guess, that might qualify you to, to do something on Amazing Avenue, I, I guess. <laughs> but uh, happy, to, uh, happy to be on. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, I think that sort of variety has led to, led to an inter- interesting blend of stuff that you've done. Uh, and one of the things that caught my eye over the last month or so was the piece you did on the Mets in the Dominican Republic and sort of their emphasis on traditional education, not just baseball. Uh, you know, how, how'd that come about? And, you know, what, what was sort of your big takeaway from doing that piece? I actually heard about it last, last spring, uh, talking to, uh, all these sensitive people. Um, and he was talking about their systems and I just had to have the answer for it out now. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, because player welfare, I think, is pretty important. Um, in sports, and I think that when teams and organizations and colleges, um, you know, when they have the power, sometimes they don't always use it and their money and their wealth uh, to help players who need it. And I just thought it was interesting that the Mets happened to be one of six teams that were helping their Latin players, their signees down in Dominican and mostly Dominican players get their high school degrees. And, you know, part of it, I wouldn't say it's like fully altruism. Uh, part of it is to help them, but they also started, I think, uh, 10 years ago now because the director at the time of their Dominican operations, Rafael Perez, um, you know, thought that having them go through high school, get their diplomas, and have them be more educated to help them uh, take direction, take instructions from their coaches, and ultimately make them better players, you know. So I think it was kind of one of those win-win scenarios where the Mets were able to find a new way on the margin to develop their players, and their players down there were able to get a degree, and if uh, in the great likelihood this would that they didn't get to become major leaguers, they had something at least to fall back on that they did when they signed with the club. Yeah, and that's sort of an interesting mix. You know, it, typically those two things are presented as, you know, opposite of each other and, and sort of counteractive towards each other. So, you know, that that to me, like you said, it doesn't necessarily make the Mets organization, you know, saints or, you know, above and beyond necessarily everybody else, but it does sort of show a little bit of a more complete picture. Because especially, you know, you, you hear a lot of stories coming out of the Dominican and, and other countries as well where, you know, it, it it makes you feel a little dirty about being in, in the baseball world, whether as a fan or, you know, a writer, whatever. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think I think there's so many um, negative stories, I guess, for lack of a better word, and deservedly so, because there's some murky stuff that goes down there that come out out of um, you know, how players are signed and, and wooed and um, treated down there. And, you know, I think everyone's heard stories about how Dominican players, because of the way um, that it's set up and their education system set up, they kind of stop going to school when they sign. I mean, some of them stop going to school before that all because they want to chase a contract. And, you know, you know it makes sense. There's an incentive for them to do it. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because, you're still making a trade-off if you're an organization like the Mets or those other teams. You have to spend money to do this, you know. Uh, you, everyone has their Dominican academies down there, but you have to spend money for the teachers, for the infrastructure, and all of that. So it's money you're not spending somewhere else. And I don't know of, uh, let's say, a definitive study that it helps for players 
somehow go better. So it's a bit, you know, these teams doing it on spec. But I think, to me, the interesting question is why isn't every organization doing this kind of a best practices type of thing? And um, talking for us, now the head of, uh, I believe, Dominican operations for MLB, um, you know, he, he kind of said baseball is not in the education space, but I think he wants – he wants teams to be able to do it. And he put out one-third who are doing the right thing right now or are on their way to, to starting these academies, one-third that are kind of okay in, in that area, and then one-third that are really slow and, and lagging. Um, so it'll be interesting to me if, if baseball looks for competitive advantages everywhere. You know, like you hear about the Dodgers and what they're doing with their farm system as they're looking for it. anywhere they can, and money is really their best tool and resource to do it. We'll see if more teams go and, and try to start these, you know, programs down in the Dominican or see if they find ways to continue educating, say, high school players to sign right out of high school and don't go to college. It, to me, that's an interesting frontier for baseball. And for sports. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, sort of shifting gears a bit, another thing that you had written about was peak velocity for the human arm. Uh, Noah Syndergaard is pitching – this evening as we record and you know he was kind of the example he and a few other pitchers you know is this sort of as hard as the arm can throw without just completely breaking um did did that i know uh when we last saw each other we talked about jeff passan's book uh you know did that story come about sort of uh, as an inspiration from that, uh, and you know, were there big red flags with with pitchers like Syndergaard when you went into it? I, honestly, I mean, Jeff's book was was awesome, um, and uh, it presented uh, uh, an interesting problem as a writer. It was like, how do I write about the arm and elbows and pitching and injuries without just going into everything that he's covered, which is pretty much the definitive book on elbow injuries. Um, but I'm a bit of a running nerd, and I forget if I made the comparison um, in the story, but you know, you watch Syndergaard throw, and he's setting all these records. Hardest fastball on average ever. Hardest slider, I think, hardest changeup, or just about hardest changeup. Um, and, and to me, it was like, okay, how much further can you go? You know, kind of like Roger Bannister's, did he break the four-minute mile, I think it's 60 years ago now. And to me, it was like, okay, can someone average 100 miles an hour? Um, you know, can someone average more than 100? What is the arm capable of? And it was it was interesting to me that there wasn't a definitive answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the running comparison is a good one, you know, because for whatever reason, even though velocity has been around for a long time in baseball and 100 is a nice big round number that, you know, we, we all we all get more impressed by 100 than 99.8. Uh, the That four-minute mile is something I think that, has even more you know i don't know to me it seems like it's more well known so i like that comparison uh, you know you, you look at guys like Araldus chapman you know he's not going out and throwing several innings um but it's still you know his off-field issues aside just strictly speaking of his ability to throw a baseball hard it's uh you know it, it's very very impressive yeah, and he's a freakish outlier. You know, there Syndergaard came out of the bullpen, I think, two weeks ago or whenever that was, and I was curious, like, what would he top out at? You know, just in this one-inning stint, completely fresh for the most part. 
and I think he hit 101 repeatedly. Um, so it just tells you how difficult it is to do what Raldis Chapman is doing night after night, even if it isn't inning at a time. Um, and I thought what was interesting was uh, I got the chance to talk to Nolan Ryan about it, and you know he's he's a freak in that way that he threw really hard, seemed to never get hurt, I think, if I remember correctly, and pitched for a long time. And I thought, you know, what is the cap for velocity if there is one for pitchers? And he said, uh, you know, with with how much less, relatively speaking, starters especially are throwing now and they're being asked to throw less, it seems with every passing year, he, he just thinks velocity is going to keep rising because they have to do less so they're able to go harder more often. And, you know, what is the ceiling? What are we going to see going forward? You know, Syndergaard, just the first in the line, of guys who are all throwing 98 to 100 with 90-plus mile-an-hour sliders, which is what someone like Glenn Fleissig at ASMI thinks, where we're just going to have a crowding effect of guys all at the top, but he doesn't think it's going to go much harder than that, where someone like Kyle Boddy at Driveline says, you know, maybe we can add a few miles an hour. He thinks he's found the right techniques and teaching principles to add miles an hour to even healthy guys. So it's going to be really fun to see what happens over the next few years and just what kind of, like, athletic marvels we see coming on to the mound. Yeah, and I think this is a, you know, it's a topic where it really helps that we have so much available information and accurate information. You know, radar guns have been around for a long time to clock pitchers, but the sort of uh, the the accuracy and precision of pitch effects and stat cast and all the other tracking technologies that exist make it a little easier to really, you know, identify or, or prove a point, whatever it is. So that, that to me is exciting. And maybe, yeah, for sure. maybe a little bit because I'm a Mets fan, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, elsewhere. Well, in the- it's also like interesting. What's, what's the value of velocity going to be to teams, right? When it's not as rare. What does that, what does that mean for teams, how they scout and try to acquire players? Right. Right. Yeah. Then, you know, does that alter, I would. It, it pretty much has to. Uh, you know, reaction time for a hitter isn't something that I don't think you can measure. You know, at least not down to uh, an exact number at this point. But something like that, if a guy can make a little bit better of that of that first move, you know, as a hitter, maybe it factors into how high he goes in the draft, or you know, what what sort of money he makes because he might be able to hit that. 100, 101, uh, or 102 if we're going up without, right. you know, or a little bit better than the, the next guy. So, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So, uh, elsewhere in the Mets rotation, Matt Harvey, this isn't breaking news this week or anything. And he's had a couple of very good starts. So, he sort of at least temporarily put to rest the circus around him. But after the last bad start, uh, he had, you know, he just wasn't good, and he blew off the media and left the room. Now, obviously, he doesn't have the reputation of being the easiest guy uh, in, in that setting on a regular basis. But I think every columnist in New York sports media pounced, and it was just, you know, as hyperbolic as you can get about Matt Harvey and how bad he was, you know, it felt like there was an opportunity to kick him while he was down and everybody, you know, sort of jumped in on it. So 
you've been in the room, you know, you've, you've talked to and dealt with players and management and all sorts of people. Um, you know, I think from a fan's perspective, a lot of people didn't, you know, like personally, I, I couldn't care less, you know, Harvey, he, he did that. That was his choice. But I'm curious to get your perspective, you know, having been in there, is it something that would really get under your skin because you're trying to work or is it something that you can kind of distance yourself from and, and say, Hey, this is a guy who's going through some stuff and he's not really going to say anything great in the, in the media scrum in the end. Yeah. I I mean, obviously at the, at that point in time, I would be, I don't know if I'd be angry or just annoyed that he's not speaking because obviously um, when something like that, you want to get the perspective, uh, you know, and as conduit to fans, you want to be able to relay it um, and what he's thinking. And you also want to be able to write your story as best as you can and not having that there. um, I don't think is, is the best for any party involved. And I'm not the type who's, you know, if he doesn't speak to the media, it's like, oh, great. Well, now I can just rip him, and that's my story instead of struggling again. Um, to me, <laughs> like, it's more annoying when he only speaks once a week after starts and not having, I guess, access to him per se, you know, during the rest of the week and asking questions like that, you know, between starts. Like, hey, what's going on? What do you think is wrong? That, to me, I always find to be more useful for a story and more uh, illuminating than just right after start when a lot of guys aren't the best quotes anyway because they're either admired in their own things or um, kind of at an adrenaline low after playing. So I, I can see why everyone's unhappy. I think part of the reason why Harvey got blasted uh, far and wide was because he is Matt Harvey. Uh, that has something to do with it. I don't know if Jacob DeGrom not speaking to the media would have been treated the same way. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, he's built up his own – uh, he's built up his own profile and his own situation that's just so vastly different from any other baseball player in the New York area uh, right now. So I think he, he gets treated differently and because of that. Um, but I, I can't get all up in arms like everyone else did. I don't know what that says for my journalistic kinship with everyone. <laughs> I don't know if they'll allow me back in, in the club next year. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. To me, it's like it's a non-story for the most part. Like it doesn't affect what's going on on the field. Um, I, th- I think I've seen arguments that it puts his teammates into bad positions because of it. Um, yeah, perhaps, but I don't think that's just, like something that fractures the clubhouse. Uh, and like I said, he's you know to me the access the rest of the time, which he wasn't really giving out or wasn't readily available to everyone, is more bothersome than just not getting to talk for a few minutes after a start where. He wasn't going to be especially, uh, you know, forthcoming anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, the sort of the between starts, because I think especially with the starting pitcher, the, you know, the, the position players are out there, their their routine's the same every day. But starting pitching is such a unique role in sports, really, to uh, yeah to really. And, and the other thing, oh, sorry, I mean, just the other thing is, you know, in a situation like that, he just had his, well, the 10th, straight bad starter or whatever like to me to to listen to him play himself wasn't really of interest whereas between starts you can talk to him and be like hey look you know do you want to explain maybe why your mechanics aren't good or why you feel like you're struggling more than just uh i'm not pitching well content which is really what these things tend to amount to be after games 
Um, but I, I can see the other side of it. And, and I think the important thing is also if you're coming from the journalist standpoint is um, you don't want to give up access at any point, at any time. You know, it's diminishing year by year, and it's harder and harder to get a chance to talk to players, even if you're covering a team or you're in the BBWAA. And, um, you know, that's a constant tug of war right now. And so I can see why there's a grievance from that point of view, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, that the overall uh, approach to it I, is definitely a, a valid point. And uh, speaking of the media, the you've done some Q&As with uh, a variety of writers on your own personal site. Uh, I think they've been interesting. I know Jared Diamond did one. Mark Carrig did one. And there's a basketball reporter whose name is escaping me at the moment. Chris Herring for the Wall Street Journal. Great Chris Herring. Yes. Yes, that was it. So how, you know, how, how has that been? Obviously, you've spent some time, a lot of time with some of these guys. Uh, but I think it's been sort of an interesting look, you know, sort of similar to what I'm trying to do on, on a lot of the interviews on the podcast. Talk to writers about their craft and all that, you know. Uh, so how, how has that process gone? getting these guys to do those? I, honestly, and I say this, don't like not at all being facetious, I am surprised that so many people have read them. Uh, <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought that like no one would care, and then I do too, and then no one would hear from them again because they'd be like, well, no one's reading them. Why are you going to take the time to, <laughs> to answer these questions? But they've been you know, well-received, and I'm really, really uh, thankful for that. And I, like for me, um, you know, I think any writer, if he's interested in getting better, uh, his, he's interested in, in how other writers, and especially like the caliber of writers that I've talked to for the Q&A, are doing their job. Like, I'm trying to learn something there, too. Um, and I'm curious to see what their experiences have been or what they think on something. You know, something like um, what they think of Matt Harvey skipping out on a, a session with reporters after a game. Um, and I and I think that there's a diversity of opinions that should be covered out there, and um, and it's just kind of a it's a cool opportunity to talk to people, uh, and they all have different kind of perspectives on this. Like you know, I talked to Jared and, and to Mark and James Wagner, who at the time was the National beat writer, uh, but and now can be covering the Mets uh, for the New York Times. And those are guys that I know, and so like I kind of knew a little bit what they were thinking on each of these topics. Um, but, you know, people like Chris and like Lindsay uh, Adler of BuzzFeed were gracious enough to give me their time. And I learned something from them as well. And I think people are interested uh, about what they think and how they do their job because, you know, the sports ecosystem is constantly expanding. And now with Twitter and newspaper writers becoming TV personalities and all that, I think that for better or for worse, reporters and journalists are part of the story now, too, in a way and are now kind of part of the way that people consume sports. So I, I, I've been surprised to find at least that, like, non-journalists are reading these things and taking interest and have feedback. And, um, you know, it's more than just, like, a little niche for, for journalists and journalists trying to eventually get jobs like they have. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think I think what's interesting is sort of the, you know, any sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, and that's something that I've tried to, you know, go with in my time in St. Lucie over the, the past few years, you know, write about somebody who might not get written about otherwise. So I think the 
the that room beat reporters columnists you know they're they're coming in and out a little bit more but it is sort of an interesting story except you know who's going to pitch it to their outlet that you know hey uh you know Craig goes to the editors in Newsday I want to do a story about all the guys that I uh that I work with <laughs> you know right yeah, I don't think I could have gotten that story done if I was full, or those interviews done if I was full at the at the Star Ledger. But that's kind of the nice thing um, about being a freelancer and independent at this moment is like no one's going to tell me no, and so I can just do some things I'm genuinely interested in. And and uh, yeah, I'm hoping that I'll be able to keep doing them and people will be responding to them and get smart and intelligent people uh, whose work I respect to to answer a few questions. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, we look forward to more of those and reading everything you're doing at all the the outlets we mentioned earlier. Uh, For those of you listening, we'll certainly have links in the show notes to all of the various places to check these things out, uh, including the interviews, the Q&As with other media members. And uh, we'll catch up with you you again soon. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me on. Anytime. Hi, my name is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Today we're going to talk about the triumphs and tribulations of Mets right-handed relief pitcher Hansel Robles. Hansel Robles has a really awesome name, and he got off to the 2016 season on an equally awesome start. During April, he pitched 10 and two-thirds innings and had a 1.69 ERA, allowing just two runs during those innings. He looked to be taking a nice step from last year when he had a 3.65 ERA and 54 innings pitched, in, and that was his rookie campaign. He had a 1.3 whip, which is a little higher than you'd like for a reliever, but his 61 strikeouts in those 54 innings is a really solid rate. He walked 18 batters, which is not terrible, but something we wanted to see him improve on during his sophomore campaign. The problem is Hansel Robles got off to a really good start in May as well. In fact, he only allowed one run in that month leading up to his outing against the Dodgers on May 28th. That one was a disaster as he allowed three home runs for three runs allowed. He also walked a pair in just one and two-thirds innings. Now, the Mets were already losing that game. It wasn't a high-leverage situation. However, it started off a few games for Robus where he would really begin to be exposed as an important pitcher in the Mets' bullpen. His very next outing turned out to be an important one against the White Sox, and that also ended in disaster with three runs allowed, including a home run by Tyler Saladino that Broke the game open for the White Sox, and it made for two straight outings in which Robles was lit up, for lack of a better word. And now, if you look at his season stats, while he's only had a couple really bad outings, his season stats start to add up, and they don't look too amazing. He's got a 3.65 ERA, but... If you combine his strand rate of 84%, which is really high, you get a 4.74 whip. He's also walked four batters per nine innings. His strikeout rate is still really good, but he's using a lot of his fastball. He's 
not using his slider really any more than he did last year. In fact, he's using his slider slightly less, so he's not expanding his repertoire repertoire at all. (laughs) That's a fun word, right? And he's not really becoming a better pitcher. He's walking a few too many guys. He's letting up these home runs, maybe in part because he only has two pitches to work with. There's not a lot of variety. And as a result, we saw the good Hansel Robles, but we've also seen the bad Hansel Robles, and it should be a while before the Mets trust him with a high leverage situation again, especially considering they have Addison Reed. Jerry Blevins has pitched pretty well this year, so that's a good righty-lefty combo you can use when the going gets tough. Robles needs to prove that he can get outs in lower leverage situations right now before he gets thrust into another big spot because his, like we said, his last few outings, just too many home runs, too many base runners. Against Miami recently, he allowed one run in two-thirds of an inning, and that outing started with him striking out the first two batters, but then he issued two walks and a double to allow a run after that. So it's been rough going for him as of late. He did just have a scoreless two-thirds of an inning against Pittsburgh, but even that had two hits included in it, so... And no strikeouts, but at least no walks. So Robles is struggling a little bit. He's still 25 years old. He's still in his second season. But right now he looks like a guy who throws his fastball a little too much, not getting as much out of his slider, and he's also losing his control a little bit. So this situation Mets fans are going to want to keep an eye on because he's potentially a really affordable guy with closer upside, but... We're starting to see that downside as May turns into June. And we'd like to see Robles continue to develop as a pitcher, but that's going to have to happen when the game's not on the line because he just hasn't pitched very well recently. So this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Welcome to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi. With the MLB amateur draft going on right now, we'll take a look at two players drafted in the first round by the Mets in the late 1980s who never quite reached a lofty expectation set for them, but certainly did have their moments. Both Chris Donalds and Alan Zinter became baseball lifers with some striking similarities to their careers, and comparing them perhaps offers an interesting coda on how the steroid era has affected the career arc of lesser knowns. Los Angeles native Chris Donalds was the first player the Mets drafted following their magical 1986 season. The left-handed hitting corner outfielder was taken 24th overall in the 1987 draft out of Loyola Marymount, two spots after Long Island native Craig Biggio, who evidently the Mets favored. The Mets did end up taking a top backstop prospect two drafts later with the 24th pick of the 1989 draft. Alan Zinter was a switch hitter out of Arizona who tore up the New York Penn League upon arrival, and so spent most of his draft year as a teammate of Donald's at St. Lucie. Donald's showed good on-base skills throughout the minors and flashed some pop with 17 homers and a 9.50 sorry, a 950 OPS at St. Lucie, while being about eight months older than league average. This prompted me to say that Mike Marshall better watch his back in my 1990 Mets preview that I wrote as a 12-year-old. Yes, I was scouting the stat line, and 
Yes, there are still copies of the preview available for purchase, in case you were wondering. But there was no rush to push Donalds through the system since New York had already a well-documented infield logjam. Yet when Greg Jeffries went down with an injury in early 1991, Donalds was called up for his first major league start at third base in a game that would mark Daryl Strawberry's first visit to Shea in an opposing uniform. Donald smacked an RBI single in his first ever at-bat against Tim Belcher and turned in several highlight defensive plays in what turned out to be a one-run win over his hometown Dodgers. The Shea crowd serenaded him that day, and his first day in the bigs turned out to be his best with the Mets as he struggled to a 523 OPS over 82 games in the next two years. While Donald struggled in his first taste in the bigs, Zinter's star also lost some luster over 1991 and 92. After playing well enough in the lower minors despite being under league average for four of his first five stops, he put up back-to-back seasons of hitting in the 220s at A during his age 23 and 24 season, the latter of which saw him switch to first base from catcher. Donalds, meanwhile, was left unprotected in the expansion draft of November 1992, and he was snatched up by the Marlins, but inexplicably released within a month. He was then signed by Houston, where his career seemed to be back on the upswing as he found a role as a left-handed bench piece, carving out a career-high 199 plate appearances. Zinter also enjoyed a resurgence in 93, smacking 24 homers at Binghamton with an 889 OPS, and he was in big league camp the next spring with the first base job up for grabs after Eddie Murray left the team. Zinter struggled that spring, though, and was traded on the last day of March to Detroit for Rico Bronia. That spring with the Mets would turn out to be Zinter's last best opportunity opportunity to taste the majors for quite a while, because despite putting up 20 or more homers in five out of six seasons at AAA for five different organizations, he ended up being blocked by Cecil Fielder in Detroit, then by the man drafted one pick in front of him, Mo Vaughn in Boston, then blocked again by a highly productive Paul Sorrento in Seattle, and then Mark Grayson in Chicago, all sluggers who enjoyed incredibly good health over this span of time. So when Zinter didn't even get a call up in 98, at age 30, after hitting 310 with a 951 OPS for the Cubs Iowa affiliate, he took a stab at playing in Japan the next year. Things similarly similarly disintegrated for Donalds. He saw increasingly less playing time over a few seasons with the Astros and Red Sox and decide, also decided to jump ship to Japan at age 30, albeit a bit earlier, joining the Osaka Kintetsu Buffaloes in 1996 to make make some money, and up his value, which he did with 20 homers and just 324 ABs his first year and a 302 average his second. Injuries curtailed much of his next two years, and he didn't appear in a single game in 1999. Zinter's foreign service went far worse, hitting only 202 in half a season, so he came back to the AAA treadmill at Iowa in 2000, then Tucson, then New Orleans. By 2002, he had played nearly 1,400 pro games, none in the majors. Meanwhile, Donald's hometown Dodgers rolled the dice and signed him to a AAA contract at age 34 in the year 2000. He, in the year 2000, he slugged 27 homers with a 328 average and 
1100 OPS in the PCL, and he got a September call-up with LA on the periphery of a wildcard race. Over the course of an eight-appearance span in September, Chris Donalds set a moderate blaze upon the baseball world with four homers and 14 at-bats. I, I can still remember the incredulity of the Baseball Tonight host at the time. Who is this guy mashing all those taters? The Dodgers wilted from the playoff race, but Donalds had established himself enough in a small sample size theater with a 735 slugging percentage in 41 plate appearances so that he ended up being the Dodgers' starting third baseman the next April. Unfortunately, struggling to a 435 OPS for the month before making his way back to the bench. He caught on with the defending world champion Diamondbacks in 2002 and had a decent year as a bench piece, but was forced to take a AAA deal the next year at age 37. He bounced around four organizations, AAA teams, over the next two years before finally retiring a respectable journeyman who had played 18 years of professional ball. When Alan Zinter was 34, he finally got the call on Father's Day 2002 to play for the Houston Astros. His first major league hit was a two-run homer, reminiscent of the natural, and it wouldn't be the last time, even though he finished that year with a 136 average and 19 strikeouts and 44 at-bats over multiple call-ups. He spent all of 2003 back in AAA Tucson, the Arizona town where he stood out at college, before the Diamondbacks signed Zanter the following offseason. In 2004, while spending most of the year in AAA as per usual, Zinter got 34 at-bats in Arizona, his last and one last, sorry, his last, <laughs> wow, what am I saying even? Okay, Zinter got 34 at-bats in Arizona and got one last big league thrill. In the 158th game of the year, a game with no meaning in the standings, Zinter came to the plate as a pinch hitter in the 11th inning with Arizona down a run with a runner on, two outs, and a full count. The 36-year-old Zinter hit a walk-off two-run bomb, and everyone celebrated like it was Game 7 of the series. It would serve as a nice bookend to his career. Naturally, he would play two more seasons in the minors as well as one more final year in independent ball without getting another call before finally retiring at after 19 seasons and nearly 2,000 games played across all levels. Right as Zinter retired in the offseason after 2007, the Mitchell Report came out, the result of a 20-month investigation into performance-enhancing drugs in baseball. Donalds was linked with Kirk Radomski, a fixture in the Mets clubhouse in the 90s who was a one-stop shop for steroids and HGH. Evidently, Donalds referred teammates in a number of organizations to Radomski and bought a bunch of stuff himself during 2000 to 2004 at minimum. While Donalds was caught in the firestorm that is still alive in Hall of Fame discussions, Zinter went straight from playing to coaching, starting as a hitting coach in rookie ball in 08. It didn't take him quite as long to get back to the majors on this route, he became the Astros' assistant hitting coach in 2014. And this year, 2016, he has taken on the primary hitting coach position for the San Diego Padres. He has openly stated that his struggles during his career give him the passion to share what he's learned 
to help others avoid the kind of problems he encountered along the way. Today, Donalds is also still part of the game in his fifth year as an assistant coach at Dana Hills High School in Orange County. He's back home, yet far from the big crowds and bright lights of a major league stadium. This has been Forgotten Mets. I'm Brian Renzi, and I will catch you next time down hazy memory lane. Hi, it's Kate with your weekly Panic City Meter. So this is probably going to be the most depressing one I've given. Actually, I just jinxed myself. It's not. We're going to have a week when the Mets go 0-7. But for now, it's pretty bad. They've gone 3-7 and seven in their last 10. The bats are just, they're just non-existent. I mean, I don't even know what to say at this point, but nobody is hitting. And, you know, you can't do anything with that. It's just, it's very ugly. And just today, it's Wednesday, the Mets just traded for Kelly Johnson. This is not a year ago, this is today. And I've seen the complaints, I don't get the complaints, I'm fine with them trading off of Kill Morris. Kelly Johnson is, he's a veteran presence for, you know, what you want to read into that. He's fine. He's going to be better than his, you know, 215, whatever he was hitting in Atlanta. And he's not Ty Kelly and he's not Eric Campbell. And we have to just keep keeping, you know, reminding ourselves that, that whatever happens is better than them. Just like I said, I'm not a huge fan of James Loney, but he is also not Eric Campbell. But... That's, it's only going to do so much. It's just, you know, Conforto's got to pick it up. Saspidus has to pick it up. Everyone has to. This is, has been a very ugly week. They got swept in a doubleheader yesterday by John Neese of all people. And it's just, it's a little worrisome. They're three and a half back of the Nationals where Daniel Murphy is still hitting, I don't even know at this point. It's like, it's still 400 and it's just ridiculous. But I still have hope. But this is not pretty and something has to break for this team. So hopefully I'll have something better for you next week. Fingers crossed. folks that just about does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you all so much for listening we really do like hearing from you guys so whether you want to send us some comments some questions chili recipes beer suggestions whatever you want to send us we like email so send it to podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com you can follow me on twitter at brian needs a nap you can follow all of our other contributors on twitter as well chris is at chris mcshane Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Shriver is at underscore Mr. Met. Brian Renzi is at brenz78. Lucas is at lvlahos343. Aaron York is at apy5000. And our guest, Mike Vorkanoff, is at Mike underscore V-O-R-K-U-N-O-V. You can find the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on your podcatcher of choice. Of course you should visit your SB Nation New York Mets site, AmazingAvenue.com. We have 
tons of content every day from amazing writers, more of which I hope will be appearing on the show in the not-too-distant future. You can also find Amazing Avenue on all relevant social media at Amazing Avenue. So, until next time, let's go Mets! Let's go Mets!